The following podcast is part of the Underdog Sports Podcast Network. For advertising information or to find more great podcasts, visit us at www.theunderdogsports.com and follow us on Twitter at RealTheUnderdog. Welcome back to Hardwood Homies. I'm your host, Jackson Hoy. As always, I'm joined by Mike Ribbonov. Mike, we got another crazy rain day here in LA. Half of USC's campus is flooded, it seems. Uh, how is it out where you are? Uh, yeah, it's pretty wet, I guess. A lot of rain. Um, kind of slept in today. Just woke up yeah. a little while ago. Yeah, I wish I'd done that, but instead I uh, did the whole skateboard and umbrella combo through the deluge to get to class and back and then another class. But now I think it's, it's kind of stopped. So it's not as bad, but um, it's, this is not what LA is supposed to be, but we're, we're having a lot of rain right now. I'm sure this conversation is very uninteresting to you if you don't live in LA, but it's, it's quite the hassle uh, for, especially if you're needing to walk across campus to go to class. But anyways, we got lots of draft stuff to talk today. A little bit of news to start out with the, Team USA roster got announced for the Hoop Summit today. That'll be in Hoop Summit's in April, right? Uh, yes. Yeah, so that'll be coming up relatively soon. And they announced the roster for Team USA with a few, like, sort of notable snubs uh, that people were talking about. I think three top 10 sort of consensus recruits got left off. Uh, the 12-man team was Cole Anthony, Vernon Carey, Devion Harmon, Matthew Hurt, Scotty Lewis, Tyrese Maxey, Justin Moore, Wendell Moore, Isaac Okoro, Jeremiah Robinson Earl, Isaiah Stewart, and James Wiseman. And sort of the big names that people are saying got snubbed. Jaden McDaniels is kind of the, the big one. Anthony Edwards, too, who some people have as the, the number one guy in the class. And Khalil Whitney were kind of the three top ten guys that got left out. And then Nico Mannion getting mentioned as a snub. But is he eligible for the world team because he has like the national – Italy national team connection, something like that. Will he be eligible for the world team? Yes, I think so. He should be. Yeah, that's that's what I figured. But um, besides those, you know, McDaniel's, Edwards, and Whitney, what other snubs stand out to you? What do you think of this roster? Since you're sort of the expert on this this high school class. Well, I mean, obviously, I'm very happy for uh, Isaac Okoro and Wendell Moore being a part of this roster. Uh, you know, I'm a big fan of both of those guys, and I know people are going to be mad that, uh, you know, Okoro was ranked 40th by the, like, RCI or whatever, and, uh, you know, uh, he made the roster, but I think he's well-deserving of it, and uh, I think he should prove himself as that as his career continues. And, uh, Moore as well was a very good player. I talked about him a couple episodes ago and how uh, his sh- shooting, like, three-point shooting, I think, will develop as his career goes on and, you know, how young he is and all that. Uh, I definitely would, uh, you know, Devian Harmon and uh, Justin Moore are good role players, but uh, like at a, you know, setting like this in this context. But, you know, I'd probably look to add McDaniels. I'm not huge on uh, Whitney, but, you know, there are several other names that you would look to add, like, uh, you know, Romeo Weems and Anton Watson come to mind, Isaiah Mobley, uh, Oscar Tshibwe. Tshibwe will be on world team, I think. Yeah, this should be maybe on World Team. Precious Achua, I mean, I, I believe, uh, is uh, originally from Nigeria, if I recall correctly. Yeah, I saw um, him mentioned as a potential World Team candidate, too. 
Yeah, so um yeah, per- perhaps that'll be the case with those guys. I think this team it seems like was really doled out from the U16 and U17 and U18 teams of the last couple of years uh, in the FIBA tournaments that USA Basketball has been a part of. And kind of the guys that have had so much success in those events, they've kind of built a team that's more like, um, you know, a team as opposed to a collection of the guys with the most athletic talent. I guess that would be kind of their outlook on it. I actually, I would say that more and the Aquara in particular are some of the more talented and high upside guys in this class. But, uh, you know, from a more consensus uh, outlook, that would be kind of uh, the reason why some of the other guys didn't make it. Like Anthony Edwards, I think the reason he didn't make it is because he uh, famously snubbed uh, USA basketball um, last summer when uh, he didn't, I believe he didn't show up to the tryouts and instead chose to take part in the Under Armour uh, competition for the top 100 uh, players, or what is it called, the Players uh, Association or whatever, um, the, um, event. So, uh, yeah, it's a little bit of shoe politics and, uh, you know, stuff like that going on there, too. It's, uh, I think Edwards would have definitely made it if, uh, you know, uh, the that those circumstances weren't in play. Uh, so uh, there's that. And then, like, guys like Mobley and uh, even Toshibwe to some extent and uh, some of the other guys, I feel like, were also, you know, more associated with the Adidas circuit and, uh, you know, obviously um, USA Basketball is sponsored by Nike. They still bring Adidas and Under Armour and so forth guys over, but, uh, you know, closer ties in there. The guys that work with USA Basketball are more kind of aware and uh, closer to the Nike circuits and uh, the Nike shoe um, guys that are sponsored by, whose AU teams are sponsored by Nike. So, uh, you know, those guys have a little bit of a leg up. I think uh, surprise, the surprise with Whitney and uh, also Brian Anton, two guys that were part of the tryouts for this team uh, in uh, September last 2018. And uh, I wasn't there, but from everything I've heard about it, is that they both really played well in that setting. So a lot of people expected Whitney and Anton to make the team because uh, they played so well in the tryouts. So that I guess that would be like kind of surprising to me that they didn't make it. But me personally, I'm, I probably you know would consider not putting them on, uh, even though I I probably prefer Brian Anton to Scotty Lewis, who um, made the team. You know, and his, of course his teammate in high school in AAU, and I think Anton is the better player and long-term prospect between those two. But you know. Uh, yeah, I'm I'm not as critical as others may be of this team just because I'm so happy that a quarter more <laughs> made it. But uh yeah, I'll let you get in here. Yeah, uh didn't wasn't McDaniels another one who played really well at those tryouts in the in the fall? Uh I don't remember if McDaniels had a particularly great tryout or he uh McDaniels played really well in the tryouts for the U eighteen team in um June. That's uh one of the places okay. he really broke out. Uh, but he chose not to participate uh, for whatever reason. I believe the rumors were that he just wanted to go work out with his trainer or something. I don't know. But, uh, yeah, in the tryouts for the Hoop Summit team in September, uh, Brian Anton and Khalil Whitney and uh, Stewart were the three guys that kind of came out of that as the big winners from everything I had heard. Do you think that going for a bit more of, like you said, going for more like winning players, Okoro or what more even like Jeremiah Robinson Earl's kind of in that mold is a response to last year when the USA team played really lethargic and had all these guys who were just out there. I mean, Cam Reddish comes to mind in that regard and 
they ended up losing to the world team. Do you think that that was sort of like a response from the people building the roster to say, we're not going to do that this year. This year we're going to get a team that might not have the most talent, but we're going to go win because we're the, we want to beat the world team. Or do you think that they're still focused on just finding the best talent and these guys that were left off is just kind of like more of a shoe politics, that type of thing? Uh, I mean, it's it's definitely shoe politics as well, but yeah, that's a big part of it. I mean, that's what I was trying to say is, uh, yeah, like they try to build from their perspective, they were building a team, you know, as opposed to just, uh, you know, a collection of the most uh, highest, uh, you know, physical upside or talent or whatever you want to call it. Even though, again, in my mind, I think Okora and more are some of the more talented guys in this class in the top 10. But uh, I know uh, that, you know, kind of recruiting consensus uh, doesn't look at it necessarily that way. And, uh, you know, guys like Debbie Arpin and Justin Moore are surely not top 25 talents in this class and, uh, you know, are uh, both were chosen more for their kind of uh, ability to fit in within a team context, you know, Harmon, a very good spotter shooter, kind of a 3 and D uh, small guard, uh, you know, pretty fairly quick, but, you know, not a huge like talent as far as like uh, bringing a huge amount of uh you know high upside scoring or something like that so um you know uh more also uh, of course played for an AU team that went like 23 and 1 and was undefeated basically was undefeated and uh, you played the only game they lost was uh the game against Compton Magic, the champions of Adidas. And, uh, you know, Moore's team, team takeover was the champions of Nike. So that was kind of like a, the big game last summer between the two uh, shoe circuits, top teams. And uh, so they lost that one. Justin Moore's team takeover lost that game. But except for that, they're going to lose pretty much all year, if I remember right. Yeah, that's that's definitely – it'll be exciting to see that, just to see some better – hopefully some better basketball in the Hoop Summit game. Going over the world team, aside from some of the – U.S. high school prospects, the Oscar Tshibwe's, Precious Achua, guys like that who will have a you know international connections that'll be on the world team. Do you have some hopes for international prospects who will be on this world team? I think that there's some rumblings that Joshua Obiasi will be on the world team, hopefully, which would be fun. Um, maybe Servi- David Servitis uh, is on the world team this year. Do you have any other prospects that you're thinking about or hoping for maybe on this world team? Um, I mean, the roster, I mean, at least to me, I just found out about the rosters like 10 minutes ago, so I don't have like a huge amount of thoughts on that part of it. I'd have to like uh, gather a little bit more information, but uh, I mean, yeah, definitely would be great to see a BEC. I think I, I have heard a BEC's name in the past kind of uh, um, floated around this possibility for that. And um, um, what's his name? Servitas, yeah, the, that would be great to see. Even of the 2001 guys, like maybe Maladon or somebody like that, I know they're coming over for the All-Star Weekend, Maladon, Hayes, uh, I believe, Gita as well, uh, for the uh, basketball without border thing. So maybe there's, they kind of uh, want to save them for next year's Hoop Summit or something like that. But, um, yeah, uh, definitely want to see some of the top uh, international guys. Like you said, Mannion as well. But, yeah, you said the high school guys. Uh, yeah, maybe uh, w- would be interesting if uh, Lamelo could go on the international <laughs> since he played in Lithuania. But yeah. yeah, I don't think that's possible. But uh, yeah, yeah, Lamelo at the hoop summit would turn it into a completely different sort of spectacle and everything. Aside from all the the scouts and everything there, that would be uh, kind of a media circus. In addition to the fact that most of the scouting world converges on there for those that week, that would be. Quite quite a time, but uh, do you have anything else on the Hoop Summit before we, we move on to our next topics? 
Uh, yeah, not too much at this point. Again, like I said, I'm just uh, finding out about this. So, uh, yeah, maybe next week I'll come up with some more thoughts. But for now, just the initial reaction is, uh, yeah, that they've kind of built out, you know, guys that could fit together in the context of the team as opposed to going for the top talent and then just uh, some of the maybe shoe politics possibly involved. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, I know that you want to talk about some stuff with, steals and blocks and how it relates to a uh, team context. And I think we talked about this last week, some just evaluating steals in relation to uh, team context, evaluating different stats in relation to team context and all that stuff. But I think uh, you want to talk about some more of that. So do you want to just go into that? Yeah. Well, uh, did you add that to your database, the stuff that you uh, did with the percentage of team steals? Yeah. So what I did was I made a just a simple calculation where I took uh, team steal percentage and divided individual steal percentage by team steal percentage to sort of normalize uh, based on scheme. And there's much better ways to do that that are much more statistically complicated that I don't really know how to do yet that I'm hoping to someday learn how to do. But right now, just don't really know how to pull the you know historical numbers of coaches, average steal percentage and how the individual player impacts factor into that. So you have the whole confounding factor of, oh, if two players like Zion and Trey Jones, for example, are great at getting steals. They're going to raise Duke's steal percentage just on their own. And that might not be due to scheme, even though Zion does roam a lot. It's, it's also due to those, the fact that those guys are great at generating steals. So it's like sort of like a chicken and the egg thing that you have to statistically account for. And I didn't really do that. Like I, like I said, it was a very simple calculation, but just looking at that to sort of normalize uh, steal percentages along a, a single scale was interesting to see some of the guys who popped up a little bit and who fell down some, just being on these teams where, you know, you might play zone and you run this extended like two, three, like Eastern Michigan does. And every guy on that team gets a ton of steals or you're in a press or something like that, where you're getting a lot of steals versus teams that really sag back and don't play aggressive and have sort of less, less aggressive schemes and don't get as many steals. And on the whole, it didn't really like make a whole lot of guys stand out in seriously different contexts than what they did. But it was interesting to look at that. Unfortunately, my, uh, like my, import is down right now so i can't see the numbers i'll see if i can get it back up uh, when i go back to you but uh, i did i did send you some rankings and it was most of the guys near the top of the the rankings were guys who do get a lot of steals anyway like it's still going to favor guys who get a lot of steals but guys like zion and rj and cam and trey jones like duke is number one in the country in steal percentage they have like i think over 14 steal percentage as a team so their numbers got knocked way down because the average steal percentage in the country is something like uh, 9.1, 9.2. So that got knocked way down once you, you know, factored in the average of a, a lot of these teams. And again, you know, these, how much is the individual player affecting the team number? You have to account for that somehow. But it, it was interesting to look at that and see it that way. Yeah. So it kind of made me think and to realize that, you know, um, like you said, the differences weren't really that big. Like, and uh, the cases where I guess, like you said, it's not, it wasn't the most complex and, uh, uh, you know, uh, there's better ways to do that. So yeah, like maybe probably a little bit unfair to Zion and Trey in particular, but um, yeah, overall the numbers didn't change a whole lot. And it just made me think that, 
you know, perhaps I have been overrating a little bit the context. Like, it definitely matters, and uh, there is some effect of it. But even if you look at, like, Michigan State is consistently one of the lower teams in uh, the nation in steal percentage, and they definitely, uh, you know, uh, don't want their um, perimeter players playing the passing lanes a lot and uh, kind of uh, getting themselves out of position and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, but even if you look at, like, Cassius Winston steals, and uh, the difference between, like, the lowest uh, uh, steal percentage team and the, the average, like you said, 9.1, it's like uh, it's like 1.27 times, uh, the, like 127% increase, basically, he would get to be that uh, for Michigan State to become an average steal percentage team. And that's assuming that, you know, it's all due to scheme. But even if you assume that, what is that, like an increase of 0.3 or 0.4 steals, you know, steal percentage uh, for him. So it really probably doesn't make as of a difference as uh, I've begun. And I know some other people, have, I mean, anybody who watches a lot of basketball and kind of does this could notice how different schemes impact things. But, yeah, I just uh, think that maybe we've, I've myself and some other people perhaps uh, have been placing a little bit too much importance on that, and that guys that are great at steals are really, you know, really great at steals, and you should give them, you know, they're doing even if they're playing for Eastern Michigan, or you know, um, uh, Ben wrote that great article about uh, Matisse Thybul, uh last week, I believe, and uh, his historical numbers, and it's, you know, he's certainly uh, allowed to do whatever he wants in the middle of that zone, and uh, pretty much not worried about playing on ball D almost at all, but you know the historical context of those numbers and how great they are, I think definitely matters. And uh, it definitely shows how uh, talented he is when it comes to anticipation, uh, hand-eye coordination, um, uh, you know, uh, quick reaction reflexes and uh, so on and so forth, all the things that steals are such a great indicator for. And blocks as well. Blocks also, you know, it's also similar um, um, kind of argument you can make about that. So, um yeah, I just uh, kind of uh, that maybe uh, shouldn't read so much into system and context and uh, just, uh, you know, steals and blocks have proven to be great indicators throughout the years, and I think that's for a reason. And uh, at the end of the day, of course, just with as with everything, I would say it depends on the individual case. And, like, uh, for example, Kelvin Johnson in Kentucky, I still believe to some extent, uh, you know, we shouldn't uh, – like totally dismiss him as a uh, good prospect because of his, uh, you know, very highly questionable Sox numbers. Um, but at the same time, you know, overall, I just uh, decided not to place as much uh, importance on it uh, as I had started to do. I've kind of, you know, I began at the right place when I, I uh, analyzed the skills and blocks with context. But uh, as I've kind of started to use it more and more, I think I've placed a little bit too much weight on it. Yeah, so I got I got my numbers to come up. Cassius Winston has a two steal percentage, and the adjusted steal percentage thing I did was just a very simple calculation, which was uh, steal percentage divided by team steal percentage times average Division One steal percentage. So his adjusted steal percentage just goes up to two point three. So it is an increase, but it's yeah. not really a significant increase. And for some guys, you do see kind of a large delta, like a sort of big change from their steal percentage, like Bible goes from a, let's see, he's at 6.4 steal percentage, goes down to 4.5, but 4.5 is still like top five amongst all the players I have in my database of, you know, close to 1,400 prospects. So it's it's not like he just gets knocked down and his steals are totally fake. And even a couple of the guys that are ahead of him are playing tiny minutes 
on, you know, like I think one of like Jules Moore for Stony Brook, who's playing like, you know, 15 minutes a game or something like that. So it's, it's these, he's still one of the best in the country at getting steals, even when you do these, you know, sort of contextual adjustments for uh, team context and all that sort of stuff. So it's, it's important to consider context, but I, it doesn't really change things a lot in almost any case, unless you have like a truly extreme example or like we talked about with Michael Weathers before the year where his freshman year, Miami, Ohio, he literally didn't, he like wouldn't, it was like four guys playing man and then him playing his own zone where he would just run around the court, basically like a madman trying to steal and block everything. So when you have like an extreme case, like freshman year, Michael Weathers, you can see how some of those stock numbers might be somewhat fake, but even so it's, it's, it still says something when a guy can, can do those sorts of numbers. Yeah, it's just uh, it's kind of important not to miss the first for the trees. Like, stocks are a very important indicator, and if somebody does well in them, even if uh, the context uh, kind of permits them to do that and kind of helps them do that, you know. Also, you got to think about these coaches are usually, you know, maybe in Ty Beal's case, Hopkins came in in the middle of his career already and it kind of just fell in place like that. But, uh, you know, most of the time they're going to recruit guys that fit their system, you know, that they're good at steals and blocks because they want a lot of steals and blocks in their system, you know. Or in, like, Duke's case, they kind of adjusted their system this year because uh, they have so much athleticism and guys that are so great in the passing lanes. They've kind of played a very aggressive, uh, you know, um, defense where they're constantly, you know, trying to create turnovers. So they kind of adjusted to their talents. So it's not all just, you know, they they go in and you could put any guy in there and they're going to, you know, you could throw me in there and I'm going to get four steals a game. You know, you have to get the talent as well. And all the, like you said, the chicken and the egg thing. So, yeah, it's just important not to miss the forest with the trees. And that brings me to my next point, which is uh, I'm kind of uh, starting to agree with you more with DeAndre Hunter and the relevance of his uh, steals and blocks and how that kind of shows some of his, his limitations as a prospect and uh, just his ability to process the game and events around him quickly. And I think it really stood out over this weekend and on Monday in the two games against Duke and North Carolina, um, not only on the defensive end where we've talked about some of his struggles with uh, steals and blocks and, uh, you know, definitely the system is part of that, but uh, you also kind of see him, uh, uh, you know, in situations, I remember one play in particular in the Duke game or, I can't remember if it was in Duke or North Carolina, but uh, somebody was attacking the basket, and he was standing like a few feet behind them. And, uh, you know, a player like Zion, for example, somebody who's, you know, Matisse Taibio, uh, who's, you know, very active and aggressive defensively, would have rotated over and went for that block and, um, you know, probably would have got the block, you know, considering Hunter's uh, physical tools. I definitely think he could have, um, you know, contested the shot, but he kind of just stood there and uh, stayed with this guy, even though, you know, the guy, there was another player getting a fairly open layup right next to him. So, uh, and even on the offensive end, uh, particularly in the Duke game, there are several plays, uh, if you go watch it, where he kind of catches the ball and uh, pump fakes the defender out of position or it doesn't rip through where he has uh, open lane to drive to the basket, but he kind of hesitated. And uh, it just seems like he's kind of slow processing the game on both ends as a team player and uh, just recognizing situations. It just takes them, uh, you know, a moment too much, too long. And uh, that's kind of had me really more concerned with Hunter than I had in the past and kind of, uh, you know, in combination with uh, some of the realization that I've had uh, about steals and blocks and all that uh, kind of had, uh, had me uh, move down on him. Yeah, for sure. And uh, in that Duke game, I haven't watched the North Carolina game yet, but in that Duke game, 
like you said, there were some moments on offense where he just couldn't make quick decisions. Like there were opportunities for him to make some passes or make some reason. It just, it didn't happen in a snap decision. Like, like you would have, or sometimes he got sped up making decisions. Like he, he couldn't read the whole floor and he forced stuff at times. And just talking and going back to the stock numbers. So um, like crude adjusted steal percentage statistic where Virginia, their team steal percentage is like right in line with the NCAA average. Uh, Hunter has the lowest adjusted steal percentage in my top 60 of anyone aside from RJ Barrett, who gets knocked down by Duke's kind of crazy adjustment that I think if you use some more advanced statistical techniques, you probably wouldn't have that, that much of a, like a, it wouldn't be that much of a change for Barrett be, just because of how much Zion and Trey or them being anomalies is affecting Duke's team steal percentage is less of a scheme thing. But like I said, it's, it's, don't don't you use this stat to like say a lot, but it does sort of stick out that even when you use this uh, sort of quick slapdash way to adjust for team context, Hunter is still second lowest adjusted steal percentage of anyone in my top sixty besides the guy who's in a context that does sort of confound this uh, stat. Yeah, for sure. Um, and uh, I think just uh, if you're super high on the Hunter. And, uh, you know, I still, again, I still think he's a supremely talented offensive player, and I love his uh, on-ball defense. And uh, I still think he has some uh, interesting defensive upside uh, besides all this. But um, I think you'd have to be pretty high on uh, Rui Hachimura as well uh, because, you know, Hachimura is a similar-sized athlete, uh, almost the same age. Hachimura is actually a little bit younger, but, uh, you know, basically the same age and uh, also a very uh, talented comp forward uh, you know, Hunter is a little bit further along as a three-point shooter, but uh, Hutchmore does um, seem to be, uh, you know, developing in that sense. And Rui has continued to develop throughout his career. So I think it would be unfair for me to have Hunter top five or something like that and then uh, have Hutchmore, you know, uh, towards top 50, you know, 50th or something like that where I have him uh, currently, you know. Uh, I, I definitely think Hunter is the better prospect in particular on the defensive end. But, uh, you know, Hachimura is an improvement there. In the last 10 games uh, between all NCAA teams, uh, Gonzaga is number one offensive team in the nation, but also the number one defensive team in the nation. And, uh, well, you know, obviously they have some uh, favorable matchups in the uh, West Coast Conference. They match up uh, pretty well with some of the top teams in that conference because of uh, physical advantages and all that. But uh, nevertheless, you know, watching the St. Mary's game from last Saturday, it really was just um, – Absolutely unbelievable uh, on both ends. And uh, St. Mary's tried to run pick and rolls at him to kind of, uh, you know, uh, use his uh, def- lack of defensive awareness and uh, anticipation and uh, score. But uh, he uh, did really well in containing pick and roll, uh, positioning himself, and uh, even protecting the rim. He didn't get a huge amount of blocks, but he was there and he contested. And, uh, yeah, definitely was impressive to watch. And, of course, in this event, uh, St. Mary's absolutely had no answer for Hachimura, as has been the uh, case throughout his career. But, uh, yeah, he's continuously improved throughout uh, his career in Gonzaga and made pretty big leaps year to year. And, uh, you know, uh, at least in the St. Mary's game, you know, I know he's had nice defensive performances in the past, so it may be a misleading kind of misnomer. But uh, misnomer, I don't know how to pronounce it, but... Um, Nevertheless, that game against St. Mary's was hugely impressive for Hachimura. And uh, even though I still have some doubts about him because of that, uh, you know, kind of slow decision-making and ability to process uh, actions around him on the court, which I'll also get into more in a little bit. But, uh, 
Yeah, I definitely think that was a really huge and impressive performance for him that uh, kind of has had me move him up a bit on my uh, big board. Yeah, I haven't seen Gonzaga in WCC play, but some of the highlights I've seen of Rui in recent games, he has looked really impressive just doing some more grab-and-go stuff. And early in the season, the Duke game, he did have some of those impressive passes in uh, grab-and-go situations that were sort of like, oh, he's making some quick reads now and then. That seemed to just be kind of a flash. I wasn't really showing up in other games. But now in WCC play, at least in some of the highlight tapes I've seen, he, he has pulled that out a little bit more. So I definitely am going to try to check out at least one or two uh, Gonzaga games from WCC, uh, maybe against St. Mary's or uh, maybe one of their San Francisco games, something like that, just because he's he seems to have really, you know, obviously, again, like you said, it's a bit of a step down from the competition they were playing in the non-conference. But it's still a, a, re- a really solid conference with a lot of solid teams. It's not like they're just beating up on these teams full of scrubs. Like all these teams have uh, pretty legit talent, so it'll be, it'll be exciting to see um, how he looks. And I, I'm definitely open to moving up on him. And I think the point about him versus Hunter is a good one. It's one I've kind of been thinking about a bit, a little bit more over the past, you know, couple months. Is that uh, there is some cognitive dis- dissonance between you know being super high on Hunter, having him really high, and then also being way out on Hachimura when you know they're not all that different even though they are different players they're not they're sort of the the reasons the cases against them are fairly similar yeah and um uh what's say damn i just slipped my mind uh but uh yeah um what i wanted to get into next is about that uh you know ability to process the game and making quick decisions you know i touched on uh, and talked about uh touched on i talked about it uh for a little while on the, the archetype stuff uh, from last week, if you want to go back and hear that. But um, uh, I kind of, as I started to talk about that, I had so many things that I wanted to express and talk about that uh, my mind kind of went a hundred different ways and, uh, you know, uh, kind of stumbled a little bit and missed some stuff. So uh, I just want to say basically like what I feel like is the most important quote unquote archetype is a player that has an innate feel and understanding of the game and, uh, you know, assertive mentality and kind of, uh, an intensity, high intensity that they play with along with that innate understanding of the game. And a huge, huge part of that is making quick decisions, uh, which is, uh, you know, kind of the limiting thing for Hunter and Hachimura. And, uh, you know, less so as far as quick decision-making for Kevin Porter, but with him it's the lack of intensity. So these things, even as talented as these guys are physically, and, uh, you know, some of the things they're able to do on the court and uh, some of the upside they show from that sense, I think – that's kind of a, like maybe not an actual archetype, but something that kind of uh, limits their upside and what uh, is really important in evaluating prospects is seeing uh, kind of that ability. Uh, but um, as far as uh, also uh, archetypes that are more like in the traditional sense, uh, well, I guess it's not it's not that old, you know, the uh, the uh, kind of concept of archetypes is not that old, but, uh, you know, the way that people really usually think of archetypes is like kind of, a, you know, a more in-depth categorization of players based on position uh, the two that I think kind of do matter as far as translating to the NBA worse uh, is one I talked about a little bit last week is like back to the basket slower kind of uh, offensive first guys uh, like a Julio Okafor is the most obvious example uh, where you know they could still be uh, even dominant in the NCAA but uh, you know usually struggle in the NBA today's NBA and then uh, on the other side, uh, the theory that I have is, uh, 
I think players that are able to get to the basket from off the dribble face-up situations uh, using speed, uh, you know, almost at will, are uh, able to translate to the NBA even better than uh, they do in the college level. And uh, the two examples from recent years, you know, this is a fairly rare type of player. You don't often get this type of player, but uh, you usually get one per year or so. So uh, the guy uh, from a couple of years ago, Dylan Brown, who had some pretty uh, uh, bad statistical, uh, you know, indicators and in, uh, stats overall in Cal uh, a couple of years ago. But, uh, you know, watching him play, he pretty much anytime he wanted to, just with his combination of speed and, uh, you know, size strength uh, in the, at his position, was able to get to the rim every single time he wanted pretty much. And then... Um, from 2017, of course, De'Aaron Fox is the obvious one. You know, obviously had a very good year in Kentucky that year, but, uh, uh, you know, uh, some people had some doubts about him, and he definitely wasn't like a statistical monster or anything, or, well, you know, like, I wouldn't think he was the second best prospect in that class, but, uh, you know, it's turning out like that may be the case, you know. Uh, I'm not quite sure on that. I'm not saying I would take him second in a redraft or something, but, uh, you know, I think it's at least a conversation. So, uh, you know, in this year's class, the closest guy to me that comes to that is Xavier Johnson. And uh, I recently posted the stats from Synergy combining at basket shots uh, out of pick and roll, ISO, and, uh, you know, spot-up situations. And uh, Johnson was by far number one uh, among my top 100 uh, college prospects. Uh, you know, far above the likes of like John Morant or uh, R.G. Barrett was in there. Casey Akpala has a high number of those. Um, you know, um, obviously Akpala doesn't use speed, and there's guys that do well with that that kind of use craft or size or kind of uh, bully guys a little bit. But uh, you know, out of guys that uh, use like use quickness and kind of first step. Uh, you know, I think in the NBA with the increased uh, spacing that you get in the NBA and just because it's so hard to kind of prep for that type of speed and kind of game plan for it, I think it's a skill that uh, translates uh, very well to a higher level. Yeah, for sure. And um, like Pascal Siakam is another example of that. I mean, I, honestly, I don't, I don't remember ever watching him in college at New Mexico State. I wasn't into the draft then, but I mean, that's an example of a guy with, you know, the size and the speed, and that's really been huge for him as he's continued to develop his skill game around that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, uh, you know, another thing with that uh, skill set is often guys like that, like Brown, Fox, and even John, um, to this point of their career, they're really, uh, because of that speed and their ability to get to the rim almost at will, they haven't worked on their skill game as much and usually come in with kind of a raw shooting ability and stuff like that. And uh, then uh, because they do have that kind of, uh, you know, because it's not only the speed, there's a lot of really fast guys out there. But again, it goes back to what's important is the mentality and kind of assertive, uh, aggressive uh, approach to the game that they also have in combination with the speed. So, uh, uh, you know, considering all that, it kind of uh, uh, gives them a, a, a more higher likelihood that they will continue to develop and, uh, you know, add skills to their game because, you know, like I said, they're kind of raw skill-wise, but at the same time, they uh, fit in mentally into the type of player that tends to develop uh, in the future also. Yeah, for sure. Um, speaking of Johnson, I, th- I think we had him as a guy to talk about um, him and uh, Trey McGowan's both just being uh, the pick guys, and you've kind of been leading the charge on trying to get people to talk about and watch those guys, putting them in, I've seen you put in like two games a week in your games to watch uh, for both those guys. And I just watched uh, Pitt versus Clemson 
uh, a day or two ago, and I've seen, I think, probably three or four pick games to this point. And Xavier Johnson, uh, you know, you just talked about him a little bit. Like, the the thing with him is he can get to his spots. Like, it is not a problem. Like, he, he gets to his spots because you just don't find guys with, like, that sort of frame and size where he's, like, you know, legit 6'3", legit point guard frame where he's that fast, that explosive, that shifty, changing direction. His handle is really good, too. It's not... Uh, amazing yet like he'll still have some some strips like against Clemson uh they're pretty aggressive like digging from the perimeter on drives and stuff and McCowan's had a lot of trouble trouble with that just because his handle's not uh, really close to the level of Johnson's yet but um he Johnson still has some trouble with that and that's where you see some of the turnovers come in um he does force some passes sometimes but man like just with like the physical ability and the handle to get where he wants on the court it's really impressive and um I know you, you talked about how some of his finishing struggles are you know maybe a bit overblown when you look at the specific numbers and everything of how he's getting in the rim and everything but there are some some problems like sometimes in traffic it doesn't seem like he can explode that well um up vertically but just in terms of getting to his spots and uh i i we've talked about the shot before i think where it does look weird but i think that there's a lot of reason to believe in it uh, especially just because he doesn't look too uncomfortable getting into off pull-ups he's he's just really interesting it's just that the passing and the finishing are going to have to come but he he like people talking about Lou against Dort and him being able to get to his spots and all this stuff I think that if you're talking about Dort then Johnson I think is clearly a superior prospect and the the hype that Dort's getting should largely be directed towards Johnson just because I think that he's a lot better he's a, a better version of Dort on offense essentially and while he might not have that same imposing frame and size on defense, I think that um, he's you know relatively comparable. Both those guys do have some issues off the ball on D. Um, Johnson, I don't know if some of it's scheme stuff because he'll like completely turn around from his man at times and like not really double, but sort of like soft double. And that might be a scheme thing. I'm not really sure, but it, it is kind of weird. But um, he he de- it's kind of surprising that he just hasn't really gotten this much attention considering he's posting. You know, pretty big counting stats and doing it in a you know, very athletic way in, a, in the ACC as a freshman. And there's not been much discussion about him, in, at least in like mainstream senses. Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely a little bit surprised by that. I mean, I guess it just has to do with, um, you know, his RCI. He was like a 300 in the nation of that or something like that, uh, which, you know, even at the time, you know, not to tilt my own horn or whatever, but, you know, in the pitch jam, it was pretty clear he was a much better prospect than, uh, you know, people gave him credit for. He, you know, he led the team takeover that year into the finals. They went, I don't think they won, uh, I believe Oakland Soldiers won the pitch jam, but uh, team takeover went, uh, went to the finals. And, uh, you know, Jalen Smith was uh, very good in that uh, period, but uh, I think Xavier Johnson was arguably their best player in uh, that uh, uh, pitch jam at the tournament. So, uh, yeah, it was, uh, you know, it was obvious. And he played for Bishop O'Connell, which is part of that, uh, you know, infamous uh, DMV area uh, high school league with uh, Damasa and uh, Gonzaga and uh, uh, Paul the Sixth or whatever, or Paul the Fourth. I always really forget the number. But, uh, yeah, you know, all these uh, top DMV high schools. And uh, he was the leader of Bishop O'Connell that has brought in some uh, pretty uh, interesting uh, college players in the last few years, uh, you know, Matt Lewis. Over at uh, James Madison, is he? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah, he's uh, another guy that played over there. So, uh, yeah, uh, it is kind of uh, surprising and uh, a bit disappointing, I guess, to me that uh, he isn't talked about more in the mainstream. But, um, yeah, as far as the finishing, I agree that 
what kind of keeps him from being at that level of a prospect and uh, question whether he'll be able to reach the heights of uh, Jalen Brown or De'Aaron Fox is because, uh, like you said, the vertical athleticism, uh, he's had some impressive throwdowns in space, particularly the West Virginia game. He had one really nice dunk. But uh, like and kind of a finish dunked over, uh, I believe, one of uh, West Virginia defenders, and kind of like a semi half court situation, if I remember right. But um, for the most part, yeah, like his vertical explosion is not as impressive as like Fox or Brown, and uh, you know, it doesn't match as much with uh, with his crazy speed and quickness and agility. Uh, so uh, horizontally, so uh, yeah, vertically, kind of uh, a little bit limited, and con- combined with his size. But uh, definitely, uh, as far as like the touch concerns, I do think are overstated with him. Um, you know, the numbers, uh, like I said, showed that he's pretty much like a average finisher. If you look at at least among the top 100 prospects who actually finish a lot in the half court at the rim, out of pick and roll ISO spot up, his percentage was fairly average. But uh, you know, obviously in those situations, it's tougher to finish in, in like cuts or like even putbacks or something like that, or like you know, open transition plays. You're gonna have a higher percentage of shots that are layups. You know, go in. So uh, because such, so much of his attempts are out of you know uh, face-up situations with defenders in his way, and he, you know off balance or and uh, so forth, on and so forth. Uh, you know, his overall percentages go down to go along with the fact that Pitt is one of the worst spaced offenses, you know, uh, in the, you know, among high major teams at the very least. So, um, yeah, uh, I do think his touch is overall is fine, but I do agree that the vertical explosion is sometimes a little bit questionable and some of his uh, kind of body control and balance in the air is sometimes not perfect, like not as good as you'd like. But still, uh, combined with uh, his, uh, you know, again, ability to get to wherever he wants and, uh, you know, pretty good pass vision, high intensity and quality on both ends. And I do think that, uh, you know, West uh, West Virginia, Pittsburgh plays the scheme kind of similar to West Virginia, actually, not quite as aggressive as West Virginia's press, but, you know, they do definitely try to kind of trap guys a lot and force turnovers. So uh, I do think some of the things you may be talking about on defense are scheme-based. Uh, I'm not sure exactly the particular ways you're talking about, of course, but uh, you know, in general, uh, I don't think I don't think he's like an amazing defender. But um, you know, for a freshman, he's fine enough. All right, um, Mike had to run, unfortunately, so we're gonna have to cut it short. Um, we got to most of the stuff I think we wanted to get to today. Um, there are some specific guys that we didn't get to talk about, but we have talked about most of these guys before. We'll be back next week, though. I think we're going to pick out some specific guys to do scouting reports on. Um, finally start getting more into in the in-depth with those. Um, just think been kind of hectic the past few weeks, so we haven't had time to get those organized. But I think next week we're really going to get nailed down, try to get into more some more specific stuff, uh, picking out specific guys. So we'll be back next week uh, talking about those specific guys. And thanks for listening. Go review on iTunes, uh, share the podcast, follow us on Twitter, send a feedback, whatever you want. Um, we really appreciate it. Uh, see you next week. All right. Yeah, my bad, guys. My daughter woke up. I got to go uh, take care of her. But yeah, later, everybody.